0: Welcome to today's episode of MicroConf On Air. I am your host, Rob Walling. As always, every Wednesday we live stream for about 30 minutes and we cover topics related to building and growing startups in an ambitious way, but in a way that we can, allows us to preserve our freedom, our purpose, our relationships, and doesn't burn us out. Today, I'm Really excited to be welcoming Heaton Shaw to join me. Uh, but before we dive in, I have a couple of housekeeping items. Number one, if you haven't heard or watched our uh, playlist on YouTube, it's called Building Your First SaaS: The Ultimate Crash Course. You should head to youtube.com slash microconf. And we have a handful of playlists there that we're curating. It's out of 194 microconf talks, we curated 10 that make a, cra- a crash course, a masterclass, in essence, in, in idea validation and launching and, um, growing. And there's one about customer support, one about staying mentally mentally fit and mentally acute while you're doing it um, and not being stressed out. So building your first SaaS, the ultimate crash course, it's for free, youtube.com slash microconf. If you want to participate in conversations like this, we already have two questions that have come in for Heaton today. So there's there's always live Q&A. In order to, to participate in that, go to microconfconnect.com. Apply to be a member, and it's a free uh, year round Slack channel. We are around a uh, thousand members in the Slack channel. There's really good conversation. It's heavily moderated, um, really high level, high quality conversation in there from all types of MicroConf founders. There's info products, there's WordPress plugins, SaaS founders, the, the whole deal. So, microconfconnect.com if you want to be part of that community and be able to ask questions on these live streams. If you miss an episode of this live stream, head to microconf on well, head to any podcast app and search for microconf on air. We are taking the audio of these files and we are uh, releasing them asynchronously as uh, in the podcast feed. So I think we're a couple episodes behind right now, but I was checking on that last night. So we'll, we'll see when we can get those up. Microconf on air as a podcast. And lastly, thanks as always to Basecamp and Stripe. There are, you know, microconf headline partners this year and uh, they make it a lot easier for us to get done what we do. So today, I'd like to welcome Heaton Shaw to join me. He and I are gonna dive into what to focus on at each stage of your startup. Heaton tends to not need an introduction in the microconf community, but just in case you forgot, he co-founded Crazy Egg, Kissmetrics, and now FYI. And that's at usefyi.com. FYI brings all your documents from all your apps and accounts together in one place. Heaton has self-funded several businesses. He ran an agency. He has raised venture funding. And he also blogs and has a, an email newsletter at producthabits.com. He's a many time and highly rated MicroConf speaker and host of the Startup Chat podcast with Steli FT. Heaton Shaw, thanks so much, man. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Oh, totally happy to talk to you.
0: <laughs> Are we quarantine? we I was just commenting. We're growing our hair out. We're like you know, easing easing into this stuff. So we're gonna talk about um, some pre-product market fit, post-product market fit stuff from your experience, but I wanna kick us off with a question uh, from Corinne Pope, it's kind of a two-part question. She says, I'm a former product manager and early stage founder. I know Heaton is a big product guy, so I'd be curious, what blind spots might former product managers have when building their own thing, and how much time do you usually spend on product stuff versus everything else?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the the biggest blind spot is uh, you if you're if you're doing something on your own. um, It's really interesting as a product manager, I think the most product managers have a sort of variety of experiences. So the blind spots tend to be things that they just didn't have to worry about or have enough experience with. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more to a a business than just the product. Uh, That's typically what I would say, like, especially as a business gets more mature but it it, it the questions really challenging to answer because it really is based on your own experience pre starting the business and it doesn't matter if you're a product manager or your salesperson you're your marketer you're an engineer you're what you're really looking out for when you start something new is any of the biases that you're bringing into the experience and and making sure that you're actually able to find ways to consciously address those. So like if you're a product manager, your bias is probably gonna be like, hey, let, let me go build product and I'll product my way out of any problem that I have. Uh, if you're a salesperson, you probably sell your way out of any product you have. If you're a marketer, you'll market your way out of any product you have. And the classic one is if you're an engineer, you'll engineer your way literally with code out of any problem you have. So I think it's like the the skill set that you end up figuring out really fast um, that you need to solve for is actually not your past experience, but the ability to learn new skills really fast and making sure that you know which what the right skills are that you need to learn at any given point in your business. That's kind of why I, I think the topic, you know, for today is sort of really fascinating to me and continues to be.
0: Yep. Yeah, totally. I know that even as I, grew one business after the other, I tended to make similar mistakes. I come back to product too much. I overbuild. I am not an engineer anymore. I hack code on the weekends, but I don't write production code, but I just, it's uh, the I, my hammer is always to build features and I really have to talk myself out of it and, and be aware of that. It's like a blind spot, you know, and did it with hit did it with drip. I mean, it's just always a, it's always a thing. So totally get it. Um, Will, I think, Will Johnson asked, uh, you've written a ton over the years. I wonder if any of your articles uh, are your favorite. Do you have any favorite articles or which you think are timeless?
1: My favorite article is the one that hasn't been written yet. And I, mm-hmm. I definitely write less these days and tweet more. Um, so I would say that like, yeah, I, I, you know, it, this is a very interesting question because the concept of a favorite or the concept of the best or that concept i I think can create sort of a artificial um, level of sort of praise for yourself um, when really like what you should be worried about is what's next not what you did in the past uh, in order to basically grow the fastest And, and i really do believe in sort of fast personal growth Um, I think fast business growth is a whole different (laughs) situation and conversation Mm -hmm. but fast personal growth is I think important regardless and uh, yeah so I think the idea of favorite or best I would be doing myself a disservice if I really wanted to point something out and say hey that was my best thing uh, because that implies that maybe I can't do better ever again and so a lot of my time is spent more on what's next and way less so on sort of what happened in the past, whether it was good or bad. I mean, you know, in in my companies, we do a lot of postmortems. I do those mentally for almost every experience that I have personally. Um, At the same time, like, it's just about getting better. And so, yeah, there was this article I wrote about my billion dollar mistake that was very popular. Um, If you ask other people, they might say, that's my best article, or that's the favorite thing that I've written. I mean, I wrote it four times over like five years. It came from notes. That, that I wrote like about my experience at Kissmetrics uh, and where I really screwed up uh, or, or where I think I screwed up, and I look at it now and I'm like, eh, like eh, kind of sucks to be honest. But like, yeah. it was probably my most popular thing I've ever written, right? When you look at a popularity right. standpoint. But I think it sucks, and like, I'm really much more focused on what's next. And honestly, like, I think some of the best writing is when you're c- coming from an experience of your own that resonates with other people. Because it's just a story, and it's like something where like they've either experienced some version of it themselves, or they can get pulled in to the point where like it's visual. Like there's a visual for them, or like a, a sort of a level of empathy there. And like what you're, if you want to do your best work and find something like that, I think like it's really important to like think about what your own sort of personal experience is that can resonate with other people, and then working on putting content out that has more of that kind of format uh, seems to be what's working right now. But like again, like I don't. I don't think I'll ever have that experience again and be able to write about it. So I had it, I wrote about it, I've moved on and I'm very much focused on like, what's next.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense when I heard the question, I was thinking uh, oftentimes the thing I'm working on now or about to publish is my favorite. And then, but if I look back at a body of work, I have several hundred essays as well typically, it's it's almost tainted or, or impacted by what's popular. And so if I were to, at top of my head, think of what's my favorite, I, I think it would be like the top five, the ones that got the most digs, you know, or the most tweets or whatever. And, and that's, I think, a little bit disingenuous, because I don't actually believe that's, I, I don't know that that's the, a, a good way to, to think about it, you know? Yeah. So, cool. Um, one more question, and then we can dive into the main topic um all right let me see if i can summarize this uh most of us are trying to do it all yeah most of us are trying to build a product trying to get to a break-even point and taking home enough income that we can quit our jobs uh at that point what are the first one or two areas where we should look to spend on for SaaS growth so it's once you have you know some money obviously this is a, a self-funded company um where would you look to spend first What part-time contract help virtual assistants or would you invest in content and seo or social or ad optimization or general admin support or whatever Ooh, this is a bit this depends uh it depends answer for me but you have thoughts heaton
1: yeah um it's it depends for sure uh i I think the way to think about where you spend your money as a self-funded business is basically looking to figure out what's absolutely necessary for you to get that next customer, and and the one after that, and then the one after that. And I think that that's not something that you would naturally kind of think about because because, because of just, you know, and honestly, like what I've seen is because of a lot of the emotion involved with like, oh, I just made my salary in a month that, that I just didn't imagine that I could do, you know, like just six months ago or a year ago or whatever. And so I think like there is no right answer to this question except the answer that works for you. The framework is, what's gonna help you get the next customer? Or if you have 50 or 100 or 10, what's gonna let you double that? And just having that sort of rigor on that exercise is more important than me or Rob or anybody else telling you, hey, go do content marketing or go hire a virtual assistant. Honestly, I don't know. Um, But what I do know is that you should only be focused on What's the what, what's preventing you from making getting more customers, um, and it's likely it's just repeating what you've already seen work. So so the idea of repeating what's already working, finding ways to repeat that regardless of how you feel about it, because I hear a lot of times like it took me so much effort to get to these many customers, I'm like, yeah, and you think it's going to get easier for like the, the next that many? No way, right? It doesn't really get easier. It just gets, it's just different. Uh, and so I think the emphasis should be on like, what's it going to take for me to get double the customers I have or another five or whatever your you know, whatever you set up as your goals. And I think what's really helpful here is when you actually have goals, right? And you can be like, OK, I have 100 customers. I'd like to get 10 more every month, right? Or 20 more every month. OK, so then you work backwards from, OK, what's it going to take for me to get? 20 more. Well, how did I get my last 100? And what did I have to do? And what were the steps I had to do to get each one of those? How can I do that for 20 more? And then spending money and time, all your resource allocation oriented around sort of solving that problem, so to speak, which is getting more customers.
0: Yeah, when I look across like the tiny seed portfolio companies and even the the angel investments i made, I see some companies come into a tiny seed batch and they're like. I'm overwhelmed with incoming leads and I can't do all the sales demos. And I'm like, okay, so you either need to hire someone to do those or you're still doing support hire someone to do support so that you can do more demos which is right in line with what you're saying it's how do you land more other folks come in and they're like we don't have enough leads and it's like okay so now you either have to do some outbound you know outbound cold email or you need to do some inbound you need to do content marketing seo podcasts, whatever it is so that that's what i look at is it's like where is the bottleneck you know do you not have enough leads do you have too many or you have ample leads but they're not converting so then we say well why you know do you need a higher touch sales sales process do you need to qualify people more do you need a lower touch sales process so that's that's where that is. Okay, cool. So let's let's talk about the topic at hand. Um, you wanted to run through and, and kind of dig into what to focus on at each stage of your startup, and you and I talked offline, and you were thinking, you know, the stages are essentially pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. So you want to talk us through your thought process in those two stages?
1: Yeah, uh, I think the the thing you just said kind of dovetails really well into this, which is. Um, in my assessment and the time I've spent helping people think through sort of their business problems, I've found that there's always only one thing, and there's just one thing that you can do, and that's frustrating because there's there's your ability to discover what that one thing is that's the most important thing right now is the skill set, and that doesn't matter what stage you're at, that's the skill set you layer on this concept that i think it's taken me way too long to actually like appreciate is that an organization can only do one thing at a time and in, in the past i might have said something very different uh, but the more i see the patterns the more i see kind of what's possible uh in what amount of time it becomes more and more clear to me that it's like if, if the There's all like the easiest thing to get a team or even yourself to do is focus on a single thing. And that that makes everything much clearer in terms of communicating uh, responsibilities, um, bubbling up those responsibilities to one thing. And if you think about a lot of the management frameworks that are out there, majority of them operate this way too. Um, And they focus on how they help you focus on getting to that one thing. So I think as you mentioned, Rob, like depending on your scenario uh, around what's going on in your business, whether it's leads, uh, lead volume, lead conversion, uh, you have a thing to focus on. Now, all those things are things that become a problem at a stage post product market fit or some resemblance of product market fit. So let's talk about pre-product market fit first. So there's a high level of debate about how to assess product market fit. So that's the first thing I'll say. The ultimate truth about product market fit is that you have especially for the majority of the folks that are listening and part of sort of the microcom sort of community and ecosystem, you're you're likely to be building a self-funded business. Very highly likely. You're very highly likely to um, be b- building a business where you make money. Um, and and the goal is to get customers that pay you. So let's just take that filter and just say that's the sort of um, type of businesses. And if that's the case, then pre-product market fit, you're aiming to get to a point where people are willing to pay you because they need what you've built. And the way you know they need it is that they actually pay you for it. They're convinced they pay you. And then after they pay you, the way you determine that it's a need is if they keep paying you. And so there are ways that you can assess this. But all that matters is that you get customers who want to keep paying you. So my definition of product market fit in this context is you get customers that are paying you and keep paying you because they need what you built. Not they want it, they need it the want part gets them to sign up, the need part gets them to stay, because it becomes a critical part of their life somehow, right, or their work or whatever it is, you know, that you're solving for them. And so, when you think about it like that, anything you do that is not related to that, you shouldn't do it. The only focus should be, how do I get people to need what I want, or I'm sorry, need what they said they want when they signed up and keep it. And so, I, I, You know, not to get philosophical about it, but at the end of the day, if there's anything you do that doesn't help, anything you're doing or your team's doing that doesn't help you reach that goal, then you shouldn't be doing it. And so a lot of times what that boils down to is companies early on or businesses early on when you're starting, all you really need to do and figure out is what do we need to do? What do we need to build that gets people to keep? paying us and working backwards from that concept and the thing is like if you're building something and charging money for it and you're trying to you know make a certain amount of money to either quit your job or have the passive income you have some goal in mind around how much money you want to make so sometimes it's just really easy to take that number and say i'm going to do the minimal amount of work required to get that number and that's like what your goal is so it's like what do i need to build in order to hit that number and how can i do math simple math to figure it out so if i need to hit five thousand dollars a month in recurring revenue because that's my number that's my initial number that i want to get to that might be a high number but let's say that's initial number and you're charging fifty dollars a month you need 100 people to pay you fifty dollars a month and not stop paying you so the part where people really screw it up is the idea of building something that has high churn and not realizing it has high churn. That's why I keep harping on this, they keep paying you. So pre-product market fit is all about finding something that people wanna keep paying you for. Cause usually most folks are working on a recurring subscription model. There are other models. So in, in those models, like the, mo- the, the idea would be, you've built something that people want to keep buying. <laughs> uh, whether they're, you know, and, and could be new people buying it, or it could be the same person buying more of it, that's fine. But typically let's just say this is a recurring model you want to hit some number you work backwards from that number and you do whatever you can to get to that number and make sure it's something that people are repeatedly are repeatedly willing to pay for now I'll give some tactics real quick and then we can move on to the next phase I'm assuming and so the biggest the biggest tactic here is that when you when you are doing your customer development work when you're talking to customers the thing you want to really focus on is the frequency of sort of behavior and finding things that are frequent that people are doing that you can help them do better if it's not frequent it's unlikely that they'll keep wanting to pay you for it or needing to pay you for it and what i mean by that is like if somebody's doing something once a month and it's super super high value to them for you to like help them do it once a month and but they're going to do it every month once a month that's okay if they're doing something once a day and it's really painful for them to do before your tool, and then you give them your tool or your product or whatever, and now it's much easier for them to do it, but they do it every day, and they're willing to use your product to do it every day, you're, you're literally going to be in the money if you solve their problem. And, and so, so to me, it's frequency. And then the second piece is urgency. How urgent is, is sort of that need? And then, and then there's pain. So what I was referring to a little bit is is a combination of pain and urgency. So what I try to do in conversations and customer development is oriented around the the solution or, or the problem that I'm trying to solve. I'm looking for something that's highly frequent, ideally high urgency, and ideally high pain. That is very rare. Like Most things don't hit all three high. So for example, in my business, we help you find documents in three clicks or less. There is a frequency to it that's almost daily if not literally daily it is daily where I need to find a document um, and then the urgency when you need to find it is variable depending on the type of document and the urgency kind of but it's, it's not low urgency it's usually like medium to high urgency maybe a little bit lower for certain things but usually it's high because I need it now and it's preventing me from doing my work if I can't find that document and then the pain is an interesting one the pain's usually actually pretty medium or low it's not always it's not really high pain that like hey I need to find this document it's usually medium or low but the urgency is pretty high um relatively speaking and and the frequency is really high too and so this is the way i would map the opportunities you have in front of you whether you're thinking of different businesses even thinking of adding a feature is like basically figuring that out and then you're going to be closer to solving a, rec- a problem that's recurring for people that they really sort of you know need solved for them so that's pre-product market fit thoughts
0: I like that. Um, and I, as you were talking, I was thinking about a tool like Slack, you know, where the the frequency is extremely high, right? I mean, some people are in it all day, every day. And the urgency is is variable, but once you're in Slack, everything feels like it's urgent. So that, you know, that's there. And then the pain of not, like, if you were to use Slack and then suddenly your whole team did not use Slack, it, it would all be email or you'd switch a tool, like, there would be pain there, you know? So, then and, and Slack grows like a, you know, one of the it's a B2B tool that grows like a B2C, has a B2C growth curve. Um, and That's I right. went through mentally like drip, you know, drip where drip is on each of those. And, you know, just was running through businesses in my mind. So I really like that framework. I haven't heard you talk about it before. Yep. So what's what about uh, post-product market fit? You've built something that people want. They're, you know, to some degree, they're continuing to pay you for it. What's your thought, your framework there?
1: Yeah. Um, once you've figured it out and you found the whole idea of like people paying you um, and you feel like you, know, you have product market fit because there's enough people paying you, churn is low, um, what you really care about is one thing, and what you care about, and this is the thing that people get most distracted with, is how do we get more people to that experience where they need the product so badly that they're willing to keep paying for it? And all your job is is to get as many people as possible to that experience. So in, in the earliest stages of, of sort of post-product market fit, when you feel it, you're going to see signs of word of mouth, people signing up. You don't know them. You don't know who's signing up. You don't know why they're signing up. You're going to see a lot of these signs, even if it's just one or two extra people a day, you're just going to see some of those things happen. And that's kind of when you kind of know it, um, or you're just going to see, you're going to basically think of it this way, the sign of early fit and ready to scale, so to speak, or grow or whatever it, or is this idea, this concept that like unsolicited people are coming to you somehow. Emails, even like referrals are unsolicited. If someone refers you and says, hey, I, I, my friend should use this or whatever, it's unsolicited, it comes in. So that's a sign. The second you have that, you're gonna basically get a, a different type of audience than you kind of had before. That's kind of like what you start seeing happen in almost every case. And when that happens, their experience is actually likely to be different than the experience of the people who got you to product market fit and who were the early adopters, so to speak. Not that you've gotten past early adopters, but there's different considerations. I've seen this like over and over again, because the way they came into the product might be very different. You might not have handheld them. You might not have called them up to get them to use it. So there's just a whole different context and they're coming in and it's likely your your site kind of sucks for them uh it's likely that your 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 sort of uh onboarding is not very efficient or optimized and it might even be manual which is totally fine if you can scale it manually go for it uh so that's the whole idea of like you know uh concierge onboarding and all those concepts that are kind of very micro com- concepts in my opinion um and and so what you're looking to do as step one is make your own funnel as efficient as you possibly can for whoever's coming through it even if the numbers are low Uh, It's not about optimization, like from an A-B testing standpoint. It's more so just low-hanging fruit on how do we make this experience that much better. And literally, it's about taking every step of that experience, whether it's on a screen in front of the people who are signing up, or it's an experience where you're talking to them, or an experience where it's even off your website somewhere else, um, and think about how that experience could be made 10 times better. And really push on making those experiences better, because it's likely just by doing that, you're going to be set up to like get more people because you already have people coming in. Not all of them tend to convert to becoming these customers who need your product uh, and so on. So that's the first step. And then, and, and the second step is, is literally finding all the marketing channels, all the ways to basically grow your top of funnel and get more people in there, whether it's sales, it's marketing tactics or whatever it is. And again, doing just what's been working and figuring out how to scale and do more of that is the thing I've said for many years, and I'll continue to say uh, that we tend not to do. So the focus at that point is, how do we get as many people as possible to that experience where they feel like they this is a product for them that they need and will continue to pay for? And that's all that really matters. And you can literally do that for the rest of this business um, because mm-hmm. what will come out of that is new things you need to build out and things like that. The, the, the muscle to build is is this muscle that helps you see what uh, see and understand what the new people that are coming into your product or into your funnel need that might be different than what people before that needed and that's how you basically expand because it, it's this recognition and this idea that you don't sort of you don't you don't you, you don't convince yourself that everything's okay and i just need more people to come in you have to convince yourself that i can make it better all the time we as a team can make that experience better all the time and you know that's why they say it's kind of silly that like we you know it's sort of a good habit to go sign up for your product as a new user constantly Mm -hmm. and if you were thinking this way you would do that or you would onboard people do user interviews user tests whatever your flavor is uh sales calls whatever with new prospects new people coming into the funnel so you can understand what their experiences are like because there's two things that change uh, that you are not in control of. You're not always in control of who's coming to your site uh, or your business and, and their experience. Like you're not always in control of that because a lot of it happens before they visit and, and come to your site. So you need to understand them much better. And new people, you know, over time, new people come and they have different impressions of your business when they start. And whatever impressions people that you know came before had, it might be very different for these new people. The second thing is something you don't control much either and that that piece of it is um uh basically the the idea that as time goes on the market changes and the people coming to your site might be exposed to competitors or alternatives to your business and your product that you might not as clearly be aware of and that means that their whole impression of what you're doing is different because they might come in in the beginning they might come in and be like oh you know the customers that came in were like i never knew i could. Do this i never knew this was possible then over time like six months in a year in or longer other folks might have the same feature set functionality or the customers coming might already be exposed to an alternative and then they come in and they're like oh this is like x or y and then the whole way you treat them is actually has to change because they have an impression that's very different than the impression from the early folks
0: I think that's really insightful and something I don't I don't think a lot of people think about, um, especially early on as as an entrepreneur, we were running up against time, but I did want to get one more question in from um, the microconf on air channel and microconf connect. Nick from dentally says, how do you decide what areas of your product to focus on when you're in a really low churn market? He says, we're in a space where we don't really lose any customers, which means we're always trying to figure out the best part of of our product to work on next. How would you think about that?
1: Um. Well, lucky you. Um. First of all, in in finding that market and, and delivering enough value where the churn is low, um, I would focus on anything we can do on product. I would basically just convert the whole business into a a acquisition team. And so everything I would do would be how do we get more customers? Whether it's product features we add that help distribute the product to new customers. Um, Whatever it is, you know, it depends on the context of your business and your product, of course. But I'd just flip the whole team over to doing things that help you get more customers if your churn is that low. Because what really matters is how fast you can get new customers at that point. If churn is low, it's all about just getting more customers. Flip your product team over to do that, build tools that attract more customers, whatever you have to do, get more customers. Uh, You will not go wrong that way if, if, if you're correct about what you're saying about your business.
0: Heaton, thanks so much, man. You always have tons of knowledge and insight and kind of a unique mental framework of thinking about things. I really appreciate you taking 30 minutes to hang out with us today. If folks want to hear you talk about uh, talk about this kind of stuff every week, twice a week? Are you guys still twice a week on the Startup Chat?
1: Uh, yeah, I think we're twice a week there.
0: Yeah, twice, yeah. yeah. The Startup Chat, it's a podcast with Heaton Shah and Stelly FD. And if you want to follow Heaton, he is HN Shaw on Twitter, as well as prolific, (laughs) used to be prolific blogger at uh, producthabits.com. You know, I do the same thing when I'm in between companies. I do all this writing and thinking, and then you start a company and you get get pulled away. So um, thanks again to Heaton for coming on the show. Coming up, we will be, let's see, next week, uh, May 6th, same day, same time. It's Wednesday at 1 p.m. East. Paul Geisler the week after that. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show.